0: Drive.
1: And I really truly believe that anybody can be successful, it just takes hard work.
0: You're about to embark on a journey where you're
1: gonna walk out a lot of glass and ethorns. I believe that anyone who is a startup is absolutely privileged because they get to leave a legacy behind. They get to actually create something that makes a difference in the world.
0: Welcome to Season 3 of the Drive Podcast. Brought to you by the Drive app where we are the first marketplace for the personal training industry. Search through thousands of fitness plans from hundreds of certified trainers in the app or sign up as a trainer at westriveapp.com. On this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs that are changing the world. We've had millionaire founders, top level investors, and just some of the most inspiring people that you'll ever meet. Entrepreneurship is all about striving for greatness and I hope the stories you hear on this podcast inspire you to go out and become a better version of yourself now let's get to the episode we strive this week we have John Tavis who is the founder of books and he's done a lot of things in his career so first off he had a startup and then he pivoted and he decided he wanted to work at Disney for several years he absolutely loved that and then he decided he wanted to get into the startup world and he saw this huge opportunity to take over the flower industry and it's been a long journey for him for sure, but he's definitely done that. Uh, He was actually on Shark Tank in between this journey, and that's how I originally knew of him. He did a great job pitching to the Sharks, and he's now one of the most successful Shark Tank companies ever to come through the tank. And his company Books, Books.com, B-O-U-Q-S. If you need to order flowers, definitely check them out. They're absolutely killing the game, and he is running the flower industry right now, so. Super excited to have him on the episode. And I want to let everyone know, this will actually be our last episode as the Weastrive Podcast. So I realized that, um, you know, I run the Drive app, and it's a fitness company, and it's, I was getting kind of frustrated when people would land on Weastriveapp.com and then they would see like an entrepreneurship podcast. So. I'm actually gonna be partnering up with a good friend of mine, Farhaj Mayan. And we're gonna be starting a new podcast next week. It's gonna be called Building Fires. It's gonna be the same concept, but it'll be the two of us. We're really excited about it. And then the We Strive podcast in a couple weeks is gonna end up being a strictly fitness podcast. So I'm gonna interview um, people basically that are in the fitness industry, You know, personal trainers, celebrity trainers, uh, you know, celebrity chefs, that kind of stuff. So I wanna just get to know everything about fitness and nutrition and all that kind of stuff so but uh, yeah I'm just really excited to have John on the podcast he's you know such a veteran in the industry he mentors companies for the Disney Accelerator, uh, Amplify LA, Techstars so he knows what he's talking about really great guy and I hope you guys enjoy the episode.
1: So I'm John Tavis I'm uh, uh, founder of the Books Company which is a cut to order online flower uh, business we uh, cut flowers around the world at 140 different farms, deliver, deliver them directly to customers. Um, my background is in, I would call it generally strategy and brand. Uh, a couple years at Bain & Company doing strategy consulting, a couple years in advertising um, before coming out to LA. Uh, got my MBA at UCLA, uh, tried to start my first company there, didn't quite get it off the ground, went to Disney, worked in the corporate strategy group for six years uh sort of the intersection of technology, consumer behavior, and the Walt Disney Company brands, uh, Disney, ESPN, ABC, and Marvel, all around the world. And then uh, kind of got the itch, went to uh, shoedazzle.com, worked there for about six months before uh, leaving to start books and have been really running at uh, the flower industry ever since.
0: That is so cool. So a lot of questions too. I mean, I, I originally, I used to be obsessed with Shark Tank. I mean, I still kind of am. And uh, yeah, I mean, I originally saw you on Shark Tank years ago, so we can touch on the Shark Tank journey here in a bit. but um, let's go back, let's go back in your career a little bit. I noticed on your LinkedIn that you had done multiple internships uh, kind of with the start off your career. So I wanted to ask you, how important do you feel like internships are for people that really want to get like a jump start into whatever field they're looking at?
1: Sure. I mean, you know back when I did it, I, my sort of thought was getting an internship just a year early as a junior um, you know, between my uh between my sophomore and junior years was was in and of itself a way to stand out a little bit because a you know a senior year um a senior year internship was sort of you know standard, right? Between your junior and senior years. And so for me it was more about just getting any kind of experience that wasn't lifeguard, um, which is what i was doing prior. And so I, I think at any stage of the career um, and there's a really great talk um, um, on TEDx. Uh, I think if you just Google Ido Design Your Life TEDx, this will pop up. It was recommended to me by a good friend, Matt McCall, about you know micro testing your life, and that's all an internship really is. It's an opportunity to micro test something. Do you like it? Do they like you in it? Do you get the experience that you want? Do you want to do that again? For me, you know, my first internship was at uh, BDO Seedman in accounting in um, in Pittsburgh, and I had a Wonderful experience. I put on a tie every day. I drove downtown. I, I, I sort of just learned what it was like to be a professional in an office at you know 18 years old, and um, I learned a ton. Uh, did I learn that accounting was for me? No. Did I learn that business was for me? Yes. And so I got a lot out of that experience of just you know being given a shot to show up and try to add some value and uh, and help out an organization. And so I think the not just as an intern in college. Um, as, as, a, as a graduate student, as somebody who's in the workforce now, but thinking about a career change or whatever it might be, if you can dip your toe in, in the water and things to figure out if you like them or not, there's there's absolutely no reason to not do that, right? It is, it is only upside. And, and the only thing you're losing is, is, is time, but you're not really losing it because it's well invested in, in learning about whatever might be next.
0: A hundred percent. And I want to let the audience know that I usually send the questions to my interviewees ahead of time. Did not send that to John. That was an incredible answer, and that was off the top. So I um, was. Oh yeah, yeah we don't great need. Great no, answer. We don't need
1: no prep, man. This is what I do. about <laughs> I was, talk like, about stuff. I was
0: <laughs> like, okay, okay. That sentence was good. Okay, um, <laughs> great start. There we go. Off to a roll. All right, no, that's not an expression. Off to a. Is off to a roll an expression? I don't or think so. It could be I, on
1: I a know. roll or off to a running start. Well, I don't, I am I don't, don't think you can be right off to a roll.
0: I'm officially off to a roll right now. Uh, so let's touch on your first company before, like you made it. You made it, Like obviously, you transitioned into Disney. Um, that's a that's a great career pivot. Uh, so I mean, what what happened with your first company? Like, why did it fail?
1: So um, it was it was a business school project. My buddy Jack uh, was a is a beer aficionado. I'm also a, a craft brew drinker, though nothing close to Jack. Um we both uh sort of saw the craft brew explosion coming, right? We looked at the we looked at the data, we researched the market, we looked at what was happening to macro brews, and we saw, okay, something's gonna happen here in craft brewing and it's gonna be big. Um we we had two ideas at the time we we're sort of like, we hey, we can start a microbrew, um, but we really viewed that as a lifestyle business. Um, turns out that Nowadays, microbrews get bought for a billion dollars. So we were totally wrong on that point. Um, but we we also thought that there was a really a really big opportunity in retail, and in particular around the digitization of of the the, the you could call it bar pub cocktail lounge whatever it might be experience. And so we talked a lot about how could you bring digital tools and data into the restaurant experience, and um, and we tried to get a business off the ground sort of around that. Um, it is something that we will do someday, um, but. You know, we 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 had to raise about 1.3 million dollars at the time. This is 2005, six in in LA. The ecosystem compared to now was sort of nothing, right? Now you have multiple venture funds, a ton of early stage funds, uh, some really large, sizable sort of growth stage funds. None of that existed in 2005, 2006. So we soft circled about 200 thousand dollars. We needed 1.3. We just didn't get there. And then you know, Jack was like, "Hey, man." take your job at Disney. It's a great job. I'll keep working on this. And he kept grinding away at it for a little bit. Um, but then he ended up, ended up getting a job in, in uh, Miller Coors and in, in pricing strategy. And now he runs um, essentially all the um, microbrew operations. Um, I think it's for the Southeast for Miller Coors. So all of their microbrew labels, he's the guy in charge of all sales and marketing for those in the Southeast. So Uh, he got a job. It it ended up being a great job. He ended up working for one of the larger players, but focused on the area that we spent our time on. Um, we, I think we both have a desire to, at some point in our lives, revisit that thesis, but it's probably more of a, uh, more of a a last hurrah than, than the meat necessarily of the career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really cool. I mean, like it was kind of a, you guys kind of made your own internship in a way for him to step into Miller cores. That's pretty cool
1: yeah absolutely and 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 that's the other thing too is those you know trying to start a company on people that want to start companies they ask me all the time about risk and you know starting a company just isn't that risky you know if you if you try and for us we tried for roughly a year we were in business school so the opportunity cost was studying or drinking beer uh, and we were we were actually doing both of those things while trying to get the company off the ground so it was we were hitting all three buckets right we were studying we were we were getting credit for it it was part of a a school class project called business creation option. Uh, we were uh, drinking beer because that was literally the job and we were, we were giving ourselves experience which made us more valuable later. But um, but starting a company just isn't that risky. If, if anybody listening wants to start a company, you can go start a company, and quit your job. As long as you have enough money to feed yourself for X amount of months until you can get the revenue or to, to investment, you're not gonna starve. And if you try for six months and it completely fails, all that happens is you gave up six months of salary. And if you were able to take a consulting gig that pays you half your old salary, then you gave up three months of salary. And that's just really not that risky in, in the grand scheme of an entire career of earning for call it 30 to 40 years. Uh, six months of, of foregone salary is just not a big bet to place on potentially a massive upside option value. So I always say to people, it's it's just not that risky. The hardest part is just getting started.
0: No, I totally agree. And I think the, the skills and the... Uh just all the things you learn throughout the startup journey are totally worth it. And it's not really, not really anything you can learn in school or from another business. Like you have to kind of learn it yourself. And so I think that kind of doesn't even come with a price tag. And so um, definitely there's definitely risk to it, but I I think overall, yeah, it's not that risky, especially with all the skills that you get out of it for sure. Um, Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, look, everything's risky, right? Um, Literally crossing the street is risky. Nowadays, just walking outside is risky. There is risk. I don't think it's, disproportionately more risk than anything else you can choose in a career.
0: Fair enough.
1: Fair enough. And then, so, so that
0: didn't go well, but like I mean, it went well, but like, you know, didn't uh, become a billion dollar company, which I guess if that's the standard for doing well, then most companies don't, don't, no aren't companies. doing well. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so, uh, so you pivoted to Disney and then let's kind of hear about that journey at the, you know, a Walt Disney company. What is that like early, like mid two thousands, what is what is that?
1: Yeah, so I joined the company in two thousand six out of business school in the in the corporate uh, strategy group in a, in a sort of subgroup called corporate brand development, which was this again this sort of internal consulting group around consumer behavior and technology, which was super cool. Um, got to work on ESPN. Like my first first week on the job, my boss was like We're going to New York. We got to go work on ESPN digital stuff. I was like awesome, sweet. I'm a big sports guy. That, so that is was so super cool. fun. Um but I had a great job at Disney. It was it was literally it it, it was all that you could hope for in a, in a job. I I made pretty good money. I I worked hard but not uh, to the point where I, you know, was was, you know, in the office till 1 in the morning five days a week or anything like that, but we worked we worked hard but it was manageable. We did interesting stuff, right? Um stuff around digital strategy, uh how the iPad is going to change uh children's and families' behavior. Uh, we worked on what the Disney brand looked like in China and Korea and all around the world. Uh, I just got to have all these amazing experiences and had a great boss. Her name was Bonnie Matisich. Uh, her name is Bonnie Matisich. Um, and, uh, and learned so much from her about leading people and, and, and brand strategy and, and, and data and, and, and just really had a great run of, of just about six years. I started off as an associate, which is sort of the post-MBA uh, title that they use in corporate strategy, sort of like equivalent of an associate at a McKinsey or a BCG or a Bain, which is where most people came from. And I uh, and worked my way up to the director where I led a team and you know ran projects. And it was a, it was a really great run. I uh, Honestly, if, if corporate America was sort of made for me, I, I don't think I would have ever left that job. And even though I knew it wasn't for me at that stage in my life, it was still really hard to leave because it was just such a great job.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, I can't think of a better like first week on the job than to just be like, oh, yeah, ESPN. I, I couldn't even imagine. Um, so much so, fun. Yeah. What a cool what a cool little gig there. Or not little, but obviously, you know, cool gig. Uh, and then you're also we'll skip ahead past the, the books thing. So you've been a mentor at Techstars, Amplify LA, the Disney Accelerator. Um, are you are you a mentor in uh, mentored any other kind of groups like that?
1: Um, the, I mean, those, those couple keep me fairly busy. I have a couple, call it, I'm on, I think, six boards of advisors, but three of them are, are, are very active. And so spend time with those individual entrepreneurs trying to help them build their companies, uh, make very their companies cool. great, uh, h- help them survive the, the, the oftentimes brutal journey that is entrepreneurship and so I get I get a chance to dig into their businesses, which is super fun for me because it's a different set of challenges, different categories, different products, different business models, um, and hopefully add some value along the way.
0: A hundred percent. And so, what does that involve? Like, is TechStars emailing you every month saying like Hey, you need to do this?" Or are you checking out your companies? Like, what is your what does that mean when you're at TechStars as a mentor?
1: Yeah. So um, it it varies sort of by I'd say. Class and by my schedule, and it kind of ebbs and flows just naturally, right? If there's a if there's a class coming in, and it just so happens that we're at a super busy time, I will um, decline or, or defer on you know more of the events, more of the opportunities to engage. And if it's at a time where just our company, my life, etc., is easier to manage, then I'll will engage more. So the the level of engagement certainly goes up and down, sort of based on the year, um, but it it varies. It varies from you know going into the uh, accelerator, whether it be amplifier, tech stars, and, and giving a talk to the, the companies there around how we tackled a certain problem, what the journey is like, how to raise money, whatever it might be that is currently on on, on their minds and trying to add value in that way. Um, to you know, a, an individual company might say, hey, we really think that John can help us with problem X and we sort of quote unquote match up. And then it becomes more of an ongoing engagement throughout their time in the uh, program and sometimes, you know, after and and continuing on a relationship beyond that, if there's, you know, sort of a a mutual interest in doing so. And so it's just a, it's a nice way to, to stimulate other parts of the brain, think about things other than flowers um, from time to time (laughs) and also just, you know, help, help good people, um, you know, try to get their, their dreams off the ground.
0: Absolutely. Just got to take some time to not smell the flowers every once in a while. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So that's, so like, I interviewed a guy on here who was a writer for Forbes, uh, like just part-time who just do occasional articles. Um, And he was talking about like, you know, the kind of the hidden benefits of that, or definitely like you get a better SEO presence and blah, blah, blah. Are there any like hidden benefits to being a mentor at Techstars? Like there's obviously the, you know, the kind of status that comes with it, which is awesome. Um, Is there any sort of other, like maybe even intangible benefit that you get from mentoring these companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's there's a couple things that you get, right? I mean, one is very, and this is very selfish, although it's going to sound magnanimous, it's not meant to. Is you get a chance to give back in a way that you know no one gets to where anyone is in a in a startup without a lot of help, right? It, yeah, it's, it's a it's a whole lot of sweat, a whole lot of smarts, a whole lot of luck, and then a whole lot of help, and that's how you get a company off the ground. And so the opportunity to give back is is a big piece of it. It feels good, and and you know you disproportionately are. Especially the early stage, helping folks that just don't have a lot of resources, and so that that feels great. Um, it gives you access to you know new startup thinking, right? It, it, you can start to see the trends on these are the type of companies that are coming out. This is the trend that's happening in sector X, Y, or Z, which you can then apply to your business or to investing or to whatever other ways that you 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 uh, you know want to build out your career or your portfolio, and so. That's super helpful. It's it's a great way to identify new partners for your company. I've, I've certainly introduced TechStars and Amplify companies to my company around, you know, here's a new HR service or here's a new marketing tool or, or here's a new influencer platform or whatever it might be that's coming through those those accelerators. And so it's good for the for the company because they get a new client that's you know a, a good sized client, and then we get access to a brand new technology or a brand new platform that others haven't even seen yet. And, um, and then I'd say the last one is it just expands the network pretty dramatically, right? Each one of these founders is exceptional, whether their company goes to 5 million, 50 million, 500 million, or, or anywhere in between. These are exceptional people who could be potential hires in the future, um, might hire someone from your company, might hire you later. Like you don't know who's going to build what, right? At, at some point, you know, the Winklevi uh, twins thought that Mark Zuckerberg was the, like, the little fish in the pond and they were the big fish. And all of a sudden, he was Mark Zuckerberg, right? And and the and the Winklevoss twins have done a great job of building their own careers. But there's a point at which having those relationships is valuable. Um, whether you move on to investing in companies, you want to work for a company, um, you want to get bought, um, having good relationships up and down, you know, the sort of the curve of of startup is is just smart networking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I run a networking group in LA, and it's it's pretty successful. It's all, all fun and all games. Or- all fun and games i'm so tired right now i don't even know what i'm saying um but it's a great time and i make a lot of really good connections but i can't imagine like being a mentor at tech stars and amplify in la and all that kind of stuff i it's like on steroids of what i'm doing so i'm sure like obviously you're giving back and i love helping you know startups too like the ones that are earlier stage than i am and um you know that, that always feels great but i'm sure there's some really great benefits though besides that so that's really cool so let's go back to book so your company so you like what made you want to start this like it's a very specific idea i feel like it might have even been before like were there other companies doing what you're what you're doing like when you started it
1: yeah so we we came at the problem and the first thing is that the floral industry is a hundred billion dollars globally it is massive it's 18 billion dollars in the u.s and and yet the way that it operates is generally the same way that it operated 70 80 years ago um, very little technology, very little data, um, and it has this very long and convoluted supply chain because almost all the flowers sold in the U.S. come out of Ecuador and Colombia. And so my co-founder, who's a good friend of mine, uh, was running a farm in South America, and he was seeing some challenges from the producer side, from the farmer side. And the biggest ones were around sort of uh, power in the value chain. They were at the end of that value chain. They didn't have a lot of power. The the, the product is viewed as a commodity. Um, and, uh, and so they didn't get paid very quickly. They didn't get paid a lot. There wasn't a, a lot of great operating margin in the business. And then more importantly to him was the, the investment that he made and that the farm made in sustainability and responsible labor, you know, the way they t- treat their people, um, was just never recognized nor rewarded. And so he was looking at the supply chain going like, how can I make the end consumer care when I'm five steps removed from even the last step of retail? And so he was looking for ways to shorten that distance between the farm and 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 for him at the time, the florist. Um, and we started talking about that as sort of me as a consultant advisor to his to his business. But as I learned about the category, what I found very fascinating was that I thought all those challenges that he saw, which was rampant waste, old stems, no accountability around sustainability or, or labor, um, I saw that matched up with a challenge around brand because you have a hundred billion dollar category but you don't have a global leader in the way that you have in every other category right name um i'm going to do, give you a quiz really quickly name the leading um coffee company
0: i would guess starbucks but probably maybe okay. not
1: starbucks great
0: i'm uh, from seattle so <laughs> for Taylor area no,
1: all good that's probably right um name the leading jewelry company
0: oh yeah i don't know i to Tiffany,
1: I don't, I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Name Good the time. leading motorcycle company. Harley. Ha- right. Okay. So motorcycle. that each one of those took you about 0.2 seconds, right? And those are large cap. I mean, these are big companies um, that are defining for their category, meaning that when customers talk about those brands, they feel something. You, you might hate Starbucks, but you know it, right? Um, and you, and, and a lot of people love it. In floral, that doesn't exist, right? There's mom and pop shops. And there's you know large players that are sort of network uh, providers, but there isn't a large aspirational global brand in floral yet. It's a hundred billion dollar category, and that's what really got me excited as a brand guy coming out of Disney and working in another startup. I looked at it and thought, huh, we have this massive consumer brand opportunity on the, on the on the consumer behavior side, which is what I did at Disney for six years, and we have these massive problems for the farmer. We should just build a solution that fixes those two things. And that's how we got started.
0: That's incredible. And I was going to say, I do know one big flower company called Books, So I don't know. I don't there, know you go. Or not. there you go. Um, so what What was the first like, what was the first year like? So you're, who, who are you calling? You're talking with this one farmer, obviously, but like, how do you get your second farm? Like, what is your sales pitch to these guys? Like, how are you growing the supply chain on this?
1: Yeah, we, we really heavily relied on my co-founder. I mean, his family is pretty well known in, in Ecuadorian farming, uh, the multi-generational you know, owners of a dairy farm. And then he was helping run um, uh, the, the Rose Farm. And then so he, he went around to a bunch of different farms. So he knew them all and sort of pitched them on this idea of, hey, we'll buy the flowers directly from you. We'll ship them directly from here. We'll, we'll deploy technology at your farm that will help you do that at scale and, and very efficiently. And pretty much everyone was just like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, the farm that he was working with at the time, they were open to it. And then uh, we were able to get one other farm to jump on board with a very limited uh, sort of engagement at the very beginning. Um, and, and at that point, what we recognized was we just had to show people. Um, we weren't going to be able to convince them through talking to them that they should try this. And so that's what we did. We just said, hey, we understand you're not ready to do this right now. We're going to grow these other two farms sales by 30% over the next six months. And when we do that, then we'll come back and let you know. Um, and then we went and did that and we just grew the business. And pretty quickly, um, if it goes from a pitch that they might have heard before, or yeah, sure, how are you going to do that? Or with what money and all these sort of reasons of uh, that are excuses for why they can't do business with you. If you all of a sudden have proof that you're moving sales 5, 10, 20, 30, 50% for another another player in the space, people are going to sign up. And, and that happened really darn quickly for us. Within the first you know year, we went from, I want to say, two or three farms at the beginning to 15 or 16 farms in South America. And then after the first sort of 14 months, actually, right after I filmed Shark Tank, we launched with um, domestic farms in, in North America. And now we work with about 140 farms around the world. And so the, the, the real rubber sort of hit the road when, when we just had numbers and we could show people what we could do.
0: So how are you even like, I mean, I'm not really a shipping guy. I don't really know anything about shipping. So it's like, how do you even go into Ecuador and say like, okay, we're going to take the flowers you have and I'm going to ship them to like LA. Like how, how do you even start that? It sounds like a nightmare. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's not easy. And it's one of the reasons why doing what we do is, is very hard and it's hard to replicate. And you asked earlier, like, has, has anybody else ever done this? There are other flower companies that ship flowers from South America to a, a buyer. Look, look and, and this is for florist shops too. It's really low barriers to entry to start a flower business. If you can get access to flowers and you can create a website, you are now in the flower business. Um, but there are massive barriers to scaling a flower business. Um, you need, We've invested tens of millions of dollars in technology over the last seven years. You need access to capital to build really complicated technology because this is a perishable item. It's very dainty. It needs to go a far distance. It needs to show up in perfect condition on an exact day, and that's really hard supply chain logistics-wise, unless you have, uh, even if you have a ton of technology and data, but it's impossible without it. And so, um, starting a floral shop or starting a dropship flower provider, you know, relatively small scale, well, that's pretty easy. There aren't big barriers, but scaling it is really tough. And, and that requires access to capital, access to technology, talent, a roadmap, and a skill set for building that technology out and then making sure that you build it out in the right way that you can leverage it you know, over time. And so uh, that, that was really our thesis from the beginning, which was this this business has not seen technology innovation, um, uh, supply chain innovation in a very long time. We also had my co-founder, who, again, had been running a pretty sizable farm in South America, who was shipping a large amount of stems every month to, to, to the U.S. Um, and to around the world, frankly. But he, he had a, a set of experiences he knew. What export rules would be? Export taxes, import, import taxes, uh, regulations, quarantine, um, you know, shipping providers. He had all the relationships. Everything was sort of there with him in his head, um, and so sort of ready and and able for for us to to tackle and and to leverage all that information and those connections to build that supply chain. It still wasn't easy. Uh, we spent a good, call it seven months before we launched. Just getting it, all the different elements set up, testing it, getting all the clearances, the licenses, et cetera, et cetera, and then getting it to a point where economically it would be, it would be feasible. Um, so there was a lot of work that went into it, but it was only possible because of who he was and, and what he had been doing. So his domain expertise was really the key to unlocking that.
0: That's, I don't even know where to start. I mean, so like how are the flowers shipped themselves? I'm trying to picture like a delicate bou- bouquet, 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 Is it bouquet, or
1: bouquet, uh, tomato,
0: tomato. Oh, it is. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, both sounded right. So I wasn't sure. But I mean, are they kind of like pushed together? They have to have like their own little beauty and the beast kind of case? Like what's the how does how does that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, our flowers are packaged at the farm. So, um, you know, we will have a given set of SKUs, let's say any given month, we have 100 items, and we have each one in three sizes. So roughly 300 combinations. Um, And those will be sourced from one, two, 12 farms, depending on the item and sort of where the, where the people are located and where the farm is located. Um, our technology tells which farm to pack, what, when, how many, and it also provides all the shipping logistics information. So the farmer doesn't have to do anything other than cut and prepare the bouquets. Very cool. um, and so they do that. They do that work on the farm. They fully wrap sort of prep, prepare the bouquet. So it looks like it's ready for, for the customer and then we have a proprietary packing process with machinery and instruction and training and all that kind of stuff for the farmhands to be able to get it ready for a customer. Um, goes in the box with a vase. If you order one with you know, candy or chocolate, whatever it might be that you might be ordering um, with the note card that your, your loved one wrote and a little bit about who Books is and how we source and why that matters. And then uh, they pack it all up and they send it out for shipment. And then it's going to go you know, via either international or domestic logistics, depending on, you know, where it's coming from, um, straight to that, you know, loved one's home.
0: And more questions came out of that. Uh, so
1: do the farmers love you because
0: you make them more money? Or is it the combination of Making them more money, the process is easier. Like they're going through inventory like crazy. Like what? Like what is is that kind of is that kind of it? I mean, that's, those are obviously great reasons.
1: But yeah, I think I think there's there's certainly economic value in a relationship with us. Uh, we believe our farmers make more revenue and more profit because of because of our partnership, um, because we return more um, to that farmer um, because of the our of our value chain. Right, our value chain is us and the farmer, and that's it. And so, um, and then we pay, you know, we pay pretty quickly. We pay regularly. We're very reliable as partners, but we're also incredibly flexible. You know, we, we started this company with a farmer as a co-founder. And so we are not antithetical to the farmer's experience either. We work for the betterment of the farming community that, that works with us, sort of our entire uh, farm network, um, so that their businesses get better while our business gets better. We don't view it as a, you know, we win, you lose. We view it as an opportunity for a win-win where, the farmers' businesses get healthier, bigger, more profitable, they can invest more in their people and in sustainability. And and we win as well by getting great quality stuff for for the people that are trusting us with their important dates. And so it's a it's it is a, it's truly a win-win setup and and we rely heavily on them and and we think that we do a great service for them as well.
0: And is that something where you're always looking for new farms or is it kind of like uh the farms are based on how much supply you have in the US like are you kind of like oh we have enough farms based on how many orders we have
1: yeah we 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 grow both sides together you know so as we talked about earlier we started on day 1 in you know November 2012 with one to two farms and uh probably really one farm and now we work with 140 we add farms for you know different reasons um we are looking for a new flower type that we haven't had before that's less and less often the case just because we're at size now where we can pretty much get access to everything. Um, We might not have depth enough in something. You know, if you're if you're looking at peonies and peony season, which is sort of you know coming to an end now, there's never enough. So if we can find another great quality sustainable peony grower, we're gonna go and and do a deal with them. Um, And then it also might be about sort of packing capacity separate from do they have the flowers and or location. If we can get flowers in a place that is uh, more convenient for our customers, uh, more affordable for us, uh, better quality, or whatever it might be, we'll supplement what we already have. And so those tend to be the reasons why we expand what we have. Um, and uh, but it's it's pretty selective at this point um, because our you know our farms all combined today grow about two billion stems of flowers per year. And so crazy. there's a lot of there's a lot of supply in our network today.
0: And then last flower related questions for at least a couple minutes. Uh, what So what separates your flowers from like other like competition? And then on the other side of that coin, uh, what's the benefit for you using these particular flowers from Ecuador?
1: Sure. Um, and so just to be clear that today we actually ship from all over the place, right? We get flowers gotcha. from okay. all over the world. Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Peru, United States, Kenya, sometimes you name it, wherever the best stuff is, we go. Um, But what what really is sort of different about the way that we execute is that we control the product from the source, which means we know exactly where it comes from, which means we know how it was grown. We can hold those farmers accountable towards sustainability and responsible practices. And that way we can guarantee that to our customers. Um, And then we know when it's cut. We know when it's shipped. We know when it arrives. And all of that is designed to minimize the time between when it's cut from the farm to getting in the customer's vase, which means you get this, this whole transparency of supply chain provides a few things. Again, you get that responsible nature of the product, so You can feel good about it when you're shopping it. Um, we, we maintain a level of quality control around freshness and quality at the farm. That means um, you know, you're just getting a certain level of quality of the stem, size of the bulb, strength of the stem, uh, freshness from the day it was cut. And then since we're delivering it directly to the customer, there isn't this long wait in between, which is sort of often very typical where a flower goes from one entity to another, to another, to another, to another. And by the time it ends up in your bouquet, you don't know how long it's been in that supply chain. And so a lot of the vase life, the time that you could be enjoying it, gets sucked up in the logistics and we eliminate all that time. Um, In so doing, we also eliminate a ton of waste. So in the industry, broadly speaking, between a third and half of the flowers that enter the supply chain from the farm will will die without being sold. Um, For us, it's single digits. And so it's a combination of all those different pieces, plus uh, because we control the supply chain back to the source, we can design what we want. And so if you look at our catalog and you compare it in both depth and breadth and call it complexity versus others, uh, we just have a wider variety and a a much more unique set of, of items because we control it all the way back to the source so we know exactly what we have to work with at any given time.
0: Very cool. And uh, yeah, I was, I was on your website and I was looking at, it. it's cool that you can see like who made the flowers and like you can see a video of them and just, it makes it really cool. It's, it's an awesome experience. Um, did you, did you kind of start off with that experience? Like really showing who the farmer was or was that something that you like built over time?
1: Yeah, we built it over time. It was certainly always the mission to tell the stories of the farmer because that, that was something that one, we can do that others can't do and two is sort of endemic to the mission, right? It's, it's a, it's a farm to table network, uh, platform, if you will. And so we didn't start off with it. Um, we would talk about in like our, in the early days, we'd talk about in the product description, you know, where it came from, how they farmed, why that mattered, uh, and in our boxes. But we didn't have sort of farm specific content um, at the time. We just didn't have the, the sophisticated content generation engine that you need or the international logistics to do the shoots and all that kind of stuff. And so the, the iteration that you're seeing now sort of started in 2017, 2016. And that's really been sort of the, the way that we've been operating since then.
0: Very cool. All right, so let's get to Shark Tank. Um, I asked you before the episode, and I want to make sure we got this recorded because I I also live like near where you live. And I was thinking of applying to Shark Tank at some point. I don't know if I ever will, but thought about it in the past. And uh yeah, we I mean, Shark Tank's filmed at Culver City. It's like right down the street from both of us. And I always thought how cool it would be to just drive down the street to go and then be on shark tank and then drive back home in the same day. Um, and obviously people around the world are flying in. So can you kind of tell us about like what that day was like, just getting in your car and then filming shark tank? I mean, what, what was that like for
1: you? Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole, the whole process is kind of ironic in the sense that, um, I was introduced to shark tank, I think before anyone, almost anyone else in the world, because I worked at Disney at the time and uh, a time of being greenlit. And so I was actually in the, we were, we were working with ABC on a number of projects. And I was actually in the sort of uh, evaluation groups where they would bring in lots of Disney employees. It was nothing special for, because of me, um, but they'd bring in lots of Disney employees to watch new shows. You know, that year, Modern Family came out. I saw the very first Modern Family pilot before anyone else saw it. Um, and, uh, and Shark Tank was one of the shows that they were testing. And I remember uh, giving my feedback and being like, I love this show. But it's never going to go anywhere because it's too inside baseball. It's like too businessy. Like no one, no one likes business that much in the United States. And this is why I'm not a television executive because clearly I was wildly wrong and it became a massive, you know, whatever it is now. Uh, that was 2006. So 14, Jeez. 15 years running. Um, one of the best shows ever. So I had this history with it and I was actually an avid watcher of the show. Um, but when I got an opportunity to go on, I applied and, you know, you sort of apply and you don't expect to be chosen. You're sort of like, you know, this is a one and a whatever chance and they're not going to choose me. And they were like, yeah, we would like you to be on the show. I actually then got nervous and started questioning whether I wanted to go on the show. Um, primarily because as a fan of the show, what I saw was those that either couldn't or wouldn't negotiate on price got generally panned by the judges, right? Either they were told, they were told they were there just to, milk it for the publicity or they were they were you know not, not really there for the right reasons or whatever it might be and I, I don't I wouldn't like being painted in that light and I got really nervous because we had already closed our seed round we had closed a 1.7 million million seed round before I was supposed to go and film um, and so I knew I couldn't negotiate the price I couldn't give the sharks a $300,000 valuation when we were worth millions for other investors and so I was very nervous about what would happen in, in the tank and how it would all be positioned um, it kind of got down to their last filming date and, and they asked you and said, Hey, this is your last chance to film the, the, uh, the invitation is there, take it or leave it. And, uh, when I thought about just the opportunity to get in front of such a big audience and potentially bring on such a, a name investor as one of the sharks, I ultimately, you know, took the risk. Um, and I can say with, um, uh, definitive, uh, uh, enthusiasm that it's the best thing that any entrepreneur can do. Uh, getting on Shark Tank is a way to get eyeballs and users and exposure that you literally could not buy. Um, I don't care how much money you raise, buying that kind of in, sort of implied endorsement, even though you get rejected like I did, um, uh, for your product, for your service, that the eyeballs on it, and then the sort of, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving because then you have reruns and then we were featured later because we actually got an investment from Robert years later. Um the blog post, the you know USA Today of the top ten brands to ever be on Shark Tank. We were in that in terms of revenue. There's all these things that sort of just keeps going because it is it is literally a part of of American pop culture, and so uh, Shark Tank ha- was ha- is and has been an amazing sort of part of our journey. I would I, I will say that I I absolutely do not watch the show anymore. Once I sort of was on it for whatever reason, it was no longer compelling for me to watch it. My business also took off, so the sort of the intrigue around starting a company, the, the sort of veneer was kind of gone for me as a, as a viewer. Um, And so I definitely watched the show significantly less now. Um, But, uh, but it was a great experience. I mean, I, I, like you said, I woke up, I drove over to the lot, um, parked my car, got escorted in, got my like hair and makeup and my little trailer thing. They gave us a little prep. I waited, called my name. I walked into the tank, was in there for an almost two hours getting grilled by the sharks when I was done, I walked out, hopped my car and drove home. It was like a three, four hour deal, you know, open and shut. So pretty, pretty That's efficient. Crazy. And everyone else on the show that day was, had flown in three days prior, had gone and seen the Hollywood sign and done all the stuff. And they were almost like a little family unit because they had all been through this together. And then I just kind of popped in out of nowhere. I was like, hi, everybody did my filming. And then and I was back to work.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. I can't imagine that like, doing Shark Tank and it's like only a half day. <laughs> like it's not even, you can't, eat, like you still have to work that day. That's crazy. Yeah. I went right um, back
1: into work all afternoon. Oh, that's
0: so weird, man. I don't know if I could do that. might need to have a few drinks after that. <laughs> um, very cool though, man. Well, so what did you do to prepare for your pitch? I mean, like, cause I feel like whenever I do a pitch, uh, I always, un- uh, I either crazy over-prepare or I under-prepare. So, I mean, like, what was your mindset going in? Did you have like Did you set up like a bunch of angels to prepare to pitch to? Were you just kind of like super confident going in so you didn't really prepare that much? Like, where were you at with that?
1: Yeah, I think I was probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, don't forget, I had just been through six months of pitching to raise our seed round and we closed it, you know, call it a month before uh, the filming. So I was pretty well prepped kind of going into it. I knew how to talk about the business. I think the hardest part in in preparing was you have 90 seconds just uh, or six. 60 seconds or 90 seconds? I don't know. It's relatively tight. And so uh, the producers are pretty, uh, the show's pretty strict around that because they have to keep you moving along, right? They don't want somebody up there rambling for, for 10 minutes on their on their initial pitch. And there are certain elements you have, to, you have to catch. And so I think that was probably the hardest part in the prep was making sure that I hit all the notes. It was definitely a lot more sort of rehearsed and memorized than my typical pitch in front of a VC where I have a deck and I'm kind of riffing just like we're riffing right now. Um, yeah. So, getting that sort of methodical uh, cl- cleanliness of the pitch and really having it be sharp and tight was, I think, the hardest part in the preparation. And then, you know, so, you know, I did some prep with, you know, my wife and that kind of stuff. I, uh, uh, they, you know, they have producers that are assigned to you, and, and I was able to do some practicing with them, with my team. Um, But it's very different once you're in there because it's, you know, the first time you go on the set is when you walk on the set and they're recording. There's no, like, hanging out beforehand and chit-chatting with Cuban or whatever. It's not like that. It's, you walk in, you see them for the first time. They see you for the first time in the tank. Doors open and you're on. So the lights are shining down. You have to hit your mark. The lights are really hot. I chose to wear a sweater for some godforsaken reason. It was like not, it was like August. It was like not a cold day. But I'm cooking there, you're sweating, and then, you know, you're getting peppered with questions, and it's pretty nonstop. And that, I think, is probably the hardest part, is being sort of on your feet, on your toes, head on a swivel, sort of ready to answer the questions, have good, you know, tight answers without looking like a deer caught in headlights, uh, which which happens often on the show.
0: And it's funny you mention that, because I've interviewed, like, five different people that have gotten deals on Shark Tank or been on Shark Tank, and they all mention the lights and how hot they are. <laughs> Every single person makes a comment on how hot those lights are are
1: and they keep you out there for a while. Like I said, I was in there, I was up there for almost two hours, like an hour and 48 minutes, I think was my official time. It was a seven minute segment at the end of the day, but they, they want to get, you know, what they need to tell your story and to tell a compelling sort of investment negotiation story. And so they, they grind at you. And uh, I think it's one of the, it's a genius thing about the show is that all of the sharks are, are lapel mic'd and they're all individually mic'd. So you know, shark one and shark two have separate mics. They can both talk at the same time and then get clean audio later. Um, that's really hard when everyone's talking at the same time and you're trying to answer each question in a row, remember them. It's, it's like a, it's like trial by fire. They want to see if you get rattled. They want to figure out, Hey, can this person handle the sort of pressure cooker of the, of the tank? And if so, maybe I believe that they can handle, you know, running a business. And so uh, it's actually a fascinating sort of social experiment that happens, you know, every week on TV.
0: No, Absolutely. And uh, so, what's one thing that you took out of the experience? Or sorry, not the experience, but is there anything that you took from the the judges or the sharks that helped your company, or was it just more like you were there for the experience? Like, did you actually learn something from like the feedback they gave?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were there were the reasons they passed. I wouldn't say were were super big learning moments. You know, um, Cuban uh, didn't didn't want to invest behind a bunch of Silicon Valley VCs, so that doesn't really tell me much, other than he doesn't like. Venture capital as a as a as a function. Um, Barbara said she didn't like the name, um, but I love the name, and the name has served us very well. So that you know that was that was uh, I, I took that with a grain of salt. Um, uh, so there were different reasons, but that you know people gave us to why they were out. But I think the one that was maybe most salient, I'd say, probably two things that I took away from it. One was Mr. Wonderful was was harping on the fact that we were slow to deliver um, and we had actually already made plans to, to launch next day delivery out of domestic farms. And we were launching those farms like a month after we filmed, which, which was like four or five months before it aired. So by the time it aired, we had next day delivery, you know, rolling. Um, yeah. But he was really focused on speed of delivery. We had sort of identified that already as from our customers feedback as an area we needed to invest in, but it certainly reinforced that for us. Um, but then I think the biggest thing I took away from it is, is just sort of never giving up. You know, we, we got I got completely rejected on Shark Tank. It was sort of five five across the board just saying, no, 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 no. And not even like a, a little nibble. It was pretty much like a, no, you, you suck. Um, yeah. But uh, but like three years later, I did Robert Herjavec's Wedding Flowers. I saved him a ton of money and he invested what? in the company. And so and he invested? Yeah. Shut yeah. up. That's amazing. So Robert um, called us because he remembered the brand when he was getting married to Kim Johnson from Dancing with the Stars. Um, and... He remembered how beautiful they were and he was also getting pricing quotes and he, they were really expensive. And he was like, Hey, I remember you having this idea around making it more affordable and how do you do that? And so I got a chance to teach him about it while talking to him and, and his beautiful bride about, about their wedding. And uh, and ultimately we ended up doing the wedding flowers. We saved them a ton of money. They had an epic wedding. I mean, it was unbelievable and the flowers were gorgeous. And uh, af- afterwards he was like, Hey, like I get it now. Can I still invest? And so we had a chance God. to invest in our series seed. Uh, he ended up investing in our series C, which was, you know, four years later um, and a much higher price per share, but still able to be on the cap table and, and be a part of our, our journey at Book. So we're, we consider ourselves very lucky. We're still, I think the only company to ever be rejected in the tank, but to get a deal later outside of the tank.
0: That is crazy. Very cool, man. What an, was that? A, so he
1: just called you out of the blue? Literally out of the blue, man. I had a—I remember it like it was yesterday. I had a three o'clock call, and the, my my phone showed two fifty nine, and uh, at two fifty nine, um, my phone rang, and I thought it was gonna be my three o'clock call, and I picked up I was like, "Hey, this is John," and he was like, "Hey, John, it's Robert from Shark Tank," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> like, who, I, like, and he didn't even—it wasn't his assistant trying to schedule something. This is like this yeah. is such a great thing about Robert. He's just such a nice guy. Like, he wasn't like making it a big deal that he was calling me. He was just like, Yeah, I got your cell phone from the producers and I just want to give you a call, to talk about flowers. And I was like, all right, let's talk about flowers, Robert. And so that's what we did.
0: That's crazy. Very cool, man. What a good story. Um and so what uh what what are the next steps for you guys? Like what, what are your where are you going next?
1: Um so Books is on a tear. Um we are now 80 employees. Um not technically nice. in our office in Marina Marinadel right now. Everyone's working from home of course. Um, but we've gotten to a good size. Our our subscription business has been a big area of focus for us, and has been really a, a, a boon to the business this year. I think people are seeing the value in it. Um, it's very flexible. You can sign up for you know once a month or once a week or whatever it is, but you can skip any time you want. You can flip it from mom to sister and back to mom, or you can send it to yourself or your or your wife, and then flip it to you know so you can use it in all these different ways. And it's also just a great value. You know we're Thirty percent off plus free delivery, which is close to fifty percent off of actual dollars out the door. So it's a really great deal, and and it's a great deal compared to the industry. You know, our our most affordable plan is a, a dozen roses or the equivalent. Um, you know, either once a month or once a week is thirty six dollars delivered. You know, no no delivery fees or or anything on top of that, and that's a price point that no one can really touch in the industry. No one does high quality stuff like that for thirty six bucks, and so that's been a really big piece. Um, We we announced a $30 million fundraise uh, earlier this year um, that is designed to fuel our expansion internationally and into uh, local retail. And so obviously in a COVID world, we're going to take our time and evaluate when the right time to go into retail is and international is. Um, but, But that's sort of the next big things on the horizon for the company.
0: That's so cool. And I just, I'm just looking at the pictures of Robert's wedding and seeing the, seeing all the books flowers. That's very cool. Pretty uh, epic, right? That's a bit, uh, that's incredible. The flowers look great, man. If I have to, next time I get flowers, I, uh, when I'm dating someone again, I will definitely head up, hit up books. Um, that's B O U Q S,
1: right? So yes. B O U Q com. books.com.
0: And so, this has been incredible. Do you have any advice for anyone looking to start a company besides the million things you've already said? And I didn't mean that in a way like you've talked too much. I mean, like, no. a lot of good advice.
1: I didn't no, want to be no, a no passive worries.
0: aggressive comment to no. end the
1: podcast. All good, man. Um, yeah, I think that, look, most people that I talk to that want to start companies, the hardest thing is, is starting the company. And what I mean by that is they have ideas, they have desires. Uh, they just don't do anything to actually start it. And that's literally the difference between entrepreneurs and people that just talk about starting companies. Um, ideas are worth the, the the paper they're written on, right? I, I tell this story all the time. Um, I was eight or nine years old and I invented the hybrid electric car. And I'm not joking. I literally invented it. I, I wrote down on a piece of paper. We learned about friction in, in class and like whatever, whatever that grade is, fourth grade, third grade science. We learned about friction. And I was riding with my mom in the car, and I thought, "Huh, those brake pads are creating a lot of heat right now. If we could harness that heat and turn it into power, we could plug it back into the battery and then make the car go forward." I draw a picture, drew a picture of it. No one, Toyota, Elon Musk, no one is paying me any royalties on it because ideas are worth the paper they're written on. They're worth nothing. Execution is everything. So you can have the greatest ideas in the world. the The entrepreneurial challenge is to go and start the company. And everyone goes like what do you mean by start the company? I have to write a business plan or I have to get partners or I have to do this or I have to do that. And it's like, no, you don't. You just need to start it. You just need to get a team. You need to start executing on the stuff that you need to execute. And over time, you'll figure out all the rest. But the number one thing you do is you need to start building. And now if you have have ideas to build a rocket to go to Mars and compete with Elon Musk, well then, yeah, you got to do some other things. But most businesses, people can start without a ton of resources. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They figure out ways to make things happen without a ton of resources so that they can get more resources later. And that's really the journey.
0: Love it. Definitely taking that out as a little, uh, insert quote for the uh, podcast. So, um, John, this has been incredible. Again, been following your success for years, super happy for you guys. And I can't wait to get my next
1: order of books flowers. Please check us out at books.com. Thanks so much for having me, man. And, uh, and I love that our, our emoji icons are twins. I can't wait to see that on, uh, the the podcast page and and really appreciate you having me out
0: yeah i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to figure out how to make that work but i'll make it work so we'll get that going awesome man thanks again to everyone who's listening now for season three this isn't a huge podcast by any means but we just hit another 10,000 downloads for season two to be honest i'm just really glad that people are coming back and listening to multiple episodes and telling me about them it's just it's just exciting for me I've been able to meet the coolest people. I've had some of the most incredible conversations and I've honestly learned a lot. Had it not been for entrepreneurship, I wouldn't have met any of these people and I can officially say that I've completed over 60 amazing podcast interviews. Let's keep them coming. Uh, Don't forget to download the WeStrive app. Leave us five stars if you can. And if you're a personal trainer, be sure to sign up at train.weeStriveapp.com. Thanks again for all your support. Subscribe if you can, and have an incredible week. We strive.